So good morning. I want to encourage you to look at the insert in your bulletin. And small group sessions have, in an official way, ended. But that doesn't mean you can't continue to read and study God's word. And so I wanted to point out that there are some scripture references and questions for you to take home. And you can read one scripture and answer a set of questions each day this week throughout Holy Week um, as a way to stay connected to Jesus. And of course, you're always welcome to take notes. I believe there's some things in today's message that uh, perhaps will be new to you, I hope. And as always, I trust that the Holy Spirit will speak something to you through the scriptures that have just been read and the sermon and that God can speak directly into your life situation this morning. Today is known historically as Palm Sunday, which begins the final week of Jesus's life. And on this day, as we already noted, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. We call it, we like to call it the triumphal entry. He wept for the city of Jerusalem, he cleansed the temple, and he left that place, and the temple leaders were determined to put him to death on the cross. So remember that there's an underlying theme in the Gospels, especially in the book of Matthew, that focuses on the kingship of Jesus. He preaches and he teaches on what life looks like in the kingdom of God, and he lays out what it means for us as one of his subjects in this kingdom. So today's story about the entrance of the king is, which is what the word Messiah means in Hebrew and the word Christ in Greek, Jesus is entering Jerusalem because that's where his palace is, if we're thinking about kingship. In this case, the palace was the temple, his father's house. Jesus made this journey from the north, and you'll see a map there. To sh he started in Galilee and worked his way south, straight through Samaria into Judea. From Jericho, it's about 16 miles over to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is his goal. 16 miles of rough, mountainous terrain that he's walking on foot, and Jerusalem will be his final destiny, the place he's going to die. So Jesus enters Jerusalem, and he would have come from the east, which meant that he had to cross over the Mount of Olives, which overlooks the city. So I have a modern-day photo of what that would look like if you're standing at the top of the Mount, Mount of Olives and you're overlooking the city of Jerusalem. There it is. And there's a winding path that's going to take you. What's the first thing you see in this picture? Talk to me. The gold dome, right? You can't help but not notice it. Well, this is a modern-day photo. It's not what it looked like when Jesus was alive. But he comes to the top of the Mount of Olives, and the very first thing he's going to see is the temple, which is where that gold dome is. It's his father's house, the palace of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Second picture. Julie Anderson and Deb Haas, just a month ago, were walking this very road as they entered from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. This is what Jesus would have seen, and this is what they saw. The very first thing is that gold dome. And here comes this donkey and this colt, and they place their cloaks on him, and Jesus sits on it, and a very large crowd is spreading their cloaks on the road, and others are cutting branches and from the palm trees, and they're starting to wave them in the air like this, only they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
Jesus enters Jerusalem and everyone is in a stir. Who is this? Now, Jesus had made arrangements already before he got to Jerusalem. This is not a miracle that he sends his disciples to go get this donkey. Jesus had already arranged all of that. So the question is why? Why now? He's just walked 16 miles over very tough terrain. So why is he going to ride a donkey on the final 200 yards? It's not about Jesus' personal comfort. It's a sign that he was giving to the people. Jesus is wanting to make it very clear that he is the long-awaited messianic king. Those who didn't know before are certainly going to know it now. They foretold this 500 years earlier in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that this is what's going to happen. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So when all these people see Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, they immediately recognize the sign and they understand that Jesus is their long-awaited King Messiah. And they begin to shout these hosannas and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're shouting these things and they're waving these leafy branches that we have here. But I think this is an actually a, kind of a relatively strange practice if we think about it in modern terms. So I would like to un- you to understand the story behind waving the palm branches. You have to go back in time a little bit to the practice that happened in the fall, not the spring, at one of the three major festivals. We call it the, festival, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And so they have this, this is a modern day booth that they would make, um, like the other two festivals, the Feast of Tabernacles, they're recalling their wandering for 40, 40 years in the wilderness, and they're reminded of a time when they lived in these tiny little huts, and God brought them into the promised land of Israel. A significant part of this festival was reciting Psalm 113 through 118. They had the whole thing memorized. And in the 118th Psalm, there's a phrase where the psalmist cries out, O Lord, save us. O Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, for in the house of the Lord we bless you. And so over time, the Hebrew word Hosanna became the word they used to express their outcry for God's deliverance. Now on the last day of the festival, they would celebrate what we call the great Hosanna. And the people would recite these words from Psalm 118, O Lord, save us. And then they'd take these branches and they actually used a combination of three leafy trees, the willow, the myrtle, and the palm branch. So it wasn't spread out all fancy like a fan, like this one would be that we see today. They would bind them together and the branches were actually closed. So it looked more like, in this picture, it looks more like a sword than a fan. But we tend to look at this. This doesn't look like much of a weapon if I'm gonna go after one of you. That looks a little bit more like a weapon, even though children are the ones holding it. So, they would wave them, they'd call out for God to deliver them and save them, and there's these two things going on. You have the great Hosanna and the waving of branches, and they're associated together, 
and they would do this seven times around the temple, and they'd wave them from the left to the right. They'd wave them forward and backwards. Seven times they'd go around the temple on the last day of the festival, and they're calling out for God's deliverance. Be our king, free us, deliver us. And this is how they were shouting their hosannas at Jesus on the day that he rode into Jerusalem in what we now call Palm Sunday. He's their messianic king in fulfilling this Old Testament prophecy. So there's an interesting side note. As you look at the roof of this uh, booth or tabernacle, Jesus is here entering Jerusalem, not during the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. It's during Passover. So we're not in the fall. We're in the spring, right? People are in the habit of saving these branches that they've collected. And if you look at their roof, they save those from the fall festival to then use again in the spring at Passover. They would use them as a broom to sweep out and clean their homes. It worked very well that way. So it's very, very likely that the people who are lined up on the streets ready to welcome Jesus already had these branches in their home and they were using them as brooms. Now, one more piece of background information. 165 years before Jesus was born, there was this serious Syrian king, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, he ruled the Seleucid Empire, and he is best known, one of his greatest achievements was that he conquered and took control of Israel. And he wanted the Jews to be more like the Greeks, and so he tried to introduce Greek culture into Jewish life. And you and I know that anytime someone tries to introduce something new, there's always going to be resistance. So the Jews are resisting this king, Syrian king, and he brings in troops, and he sets up an altar, in the temple, and you know, he offers a pig, an unclean animal, in God's temple. He's offering this pig to the god Zeus. This was, of course, an extreme act of humiliation for the Jewish people. But there was a family of Jews, and this guy had three sons, and they led a revolt against all the Seleucids. And they began this revolt by cleansing the temple casting the Seleucids out of the temple area, kicking them out of most of Jerusalem, and the Jewish people started to celebrate that day and the cleansing of the temple. We call that the Feast of Hanukkah. It's not about Christmas. It's about cleaning out the temple. But this family is called, their last name is the Maccabees, and Judas Maccabee was the oldest of the three brothers. And he cleansed out the temple, and when he came back into Jerusalem, the people who had been unable to celebrate the festival of tabernacles under the Syrian king's rule, they begin to gather the branches together and they hail him as king when he comes back into Jerusalem. They're waving their branches and they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David in order to welcome him back because he's the king who cleaned out the temple and he defeated, defeated Israel's greatest enemy. 20 years later, his little brother Simon does the exact same thing. Only this time, they've displaced the Seleucids entirely from the land. And when he comes back into Jerusalem, they're waving their branches and welcoming him home. So now that you know all of that, what do you think the people were saying to Jesus when they did this for him on the day he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey? What kind of king were they hoping he would be? Were they not saying do what Judas and Simon Maccabee did 
clean out this area, get rid of our enemies, and these Romans stop that Roman tax, restore our glory days back when David and Solomon were alive. They're saying, save us. Save us now. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're saying, do it again, Jesus. Do what Judas and Simon did before you. That's the kind of king we're expecting, and that's the kind of king we're hoping for, and that's what they're crying out for on this historic day. Now there are dozens of would-be messiahs who come to do exactly what the people are hoping for, to lead a rebellion against the Romans, but we know Jesus is not one of those. Jesus had a very different way about him, calling these people to a very different kind of kingdom, not a kingdom not of geography or politics, but a kingdom of the heart where people are following God. And Jesus laid out for them a very different path, one that would lead to actual peace without ever lifting the sword. But the people in the crowd that day did not understand any of it. Jesus rode into Jerusalem, and because he would not do what they wanted him to do, because he would not be the king they were looking for, because he wasn't the one they wanted, these people freely and willingly turned their backs on him by Friday of the same week. So here's Jesus. He's still coming halfway down the Mount of Olives, and he's looking over the city of Jerusalem, and he hears the shouts of the people, and he knows what they mean by all of this, and he pauses, and he begins to weep over the city. It's interesting that the Gospels only tell us of two times that Jesus cries. He doesn't weep when people reject him. He doesn't weep when people talk behind his back. He doesn't weep when he's praying in Gethsemane the night he's arrested. He doesn't even weep when he's nailed to the cross. He only weeps when his good friend Lazarus dies and he sees the grief of the people around him. And then he weeps here when he's looking at the city of Jerusalem. Why does he weep? In Luke 19, beginning in verse 41. It tells us he approached Jerusalem and saw the city. He wept over it and he said, if you, even you had only known on this day what could bring your, your, you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground and you and the children within your walls. They won't leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem because he knows that these people are going to reject the path that he lays out for them. He knows they're going to follow others who will take up the sword and rebel against the Romans. Jesus already knows that when they do this, these people are going to be utterly demolished and crushed. He knows that just a short 40 years later, the city of Jerusalem will lay in ruins. He weeps for the people of Jerusalem over the path they will choose and where that path is going to take them. Jesus recognizes there are two paths laid out before the people, and these are the same two paths in life. First, we have the narrow path. It's hard and it's difficult, but it leads to life. It's the way of peace. And then we have this broad path. 
It's wide and open, and it's easy, and it leads to destruction. One path leads to God, while the other path leads away from God. One path is the way that will offer hope and joy and life, and the other will not. But this path over here is so appealing. It's the one that makes sense. It's the one that seems logical. It's the one our hearts yearn for. And Jesus is saying, "Uh uh-uh, choose the narrow path. All along, Jesus has been telling them about this path, the one that leads to life in his kingdom. And he taught those who would be his subjects in his kingdom to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, do good to those who wrong you, show mercy to those who need it, even if they've not asked you to forgive them. Go the second mile, turn the other cheek. When someone gives you your coat, give him your cloak too. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what he expects of the subjects, his followers. This is the way that leads to peace and to life. And that that historic day, there was no one that could see that truth. All they wanted was wealth and prosperity and personal comfort. Jesus came to show us how God meant for life to be. And just as in his day when people really didn't want that, it's no different today, is it? We want abundant life, but we use power and violence to get it. We worship the gods of materialism and power and position to give our lives meaning and purpose. And Jesus weeps. There are two paths in life that Jesus calls us to take this narrow path, the one that always leads to life. When we take the wide, broad path, we find ourselves separated from God and missing real life. Lent is a time when people ask themselves, am I on the right path? Are you on the right path? I think that Jesus still weeps over people He weeps over us when he looks at where we're headed. Let's be honest, we all get off the right path from time to time. I tell you openly that I do, and I think Lent is a really great time to get back on the path, the right path, the one that Jesus lays out for us and calls us to. So that leads me to one concluding idea. Here Jesus is continuing this trek into Jerusalem, and he walks down the Mount of Olives, and he enters into the temple courts. And the moment he does, it becomes clear to the people who've all been shouting, Hosanna, deliver us from the Romans. It becomes very clear that Jesus is there to do something other than what they've been shouting about, because Jesus doesn't stand up and give them a campaign speech. Instead, he goes straight into the temple, and he begins to cleanse it. Follow with me again in Luke's Gospel. Verses, uh, chapter 19, verse 45. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This is a strange thing. One of the gospels even says that Jesus took out a whip 
and he started driving them out. And Jesus is angry here about what's become of his father's palace, but notice that his anger is not directed at the Romans, it's directed at the people who are considered leaders in the temple. The background of this scene is that the temple is surrounded is the temple is surrounded by inner courts that are reserved only for the Jewish men. And then you have the outer courts for all their women, and then the wider courts for all the Gentiles and other people from other nations who want to come here and pray. It's in those outer courts that you have the money changers set up their tables, they're selling doves and other animals so that they can be used in temple worship. Now the priest had a rule that you had to pay the temple tax every year, and the amount was equal to about two days' wage. That was in addition to your tithe. So you already got to pay your 10% and then another two days' wage on top of it. It was used to support expenses of the temple. Jesus didn't seem to have a problem with the temple tax itself. The problem that Jesus had was with the priests who ruled and said you had to pay the temple tax in a certain kind of money, in a certain way, and you had to get your currency exchanged for the right kind of money. So those involved in this currency exchange are now making a personal profit. We, in today's um, language, we'd call this a service fee. Only it was an exorbitant service fee. They're using God for financial gain. And this is why Jesus is so upset when he walks into the temple. And now these animals that they're selling, if you were a poor person, you would buy one dove. And outside the temple courts, the dove cost one day's wage. But that dove was not certified clean. And so then you'd have to go get a clean dove over here, and it cost 20 days wage. They're stealing money from these poor people. So when Jesus walks in, he's outraged. They're stealing from people, especially the poor and the most vulnerable. And he's taken, these people have now taken his father's house intended for prayer, made it into a den of thieves, and you are now using God to fill your pockets. Now I am certain that these priests all started out on the right track. They started out wanting to serve God they gave themselves over to that ministry. And I think the money changers who are working in the temple and working for God, they too started out simply wanting to help people. But somewhere along the way, they drifted. And these folks got off the right path. And instead of serving God, they started serving their own selfish interests, the lesser gods of the culture and the gods of the world. Jesus says that you will need to decide who will be first in your life, God or money. You can't serve both. So in other words, you can't walk two different paths. Just as these folks started to compromise and slowly started to drift, it's really common and easy for all of us, isn't it? Lent is a time of self-examination, so I'm going to invite you to answer this question. God, what is it that you weep over in my life? What is it in this your temple? The Bible says your heart is God's temple. So what is it in your heart that you need to let Jesus drive out? 
What practices or thoughts or habits or attitudes or deeds have you allowed to sneak into your heart? How have you strayed off the path that you've started out on? How have you gotten off the right path, the one that leads to life and the path that leads to the way of Jesus? And the good news for today is that it doesn't matter how far you've gotten off track. Jesus welcomes you back the moment you confess and repent and start heading in the right direction. Whether that's the first time for you or whether it's the 10,000th time. No matter how little you may have gotten off track. Any miss is as good as a mile, and when you're off track, you're off track. So you need to get back on track, just like the person who's wandered way off track. This day, will you invite Jesus to cleanse the temple of your heart? Will you invite Jesus to make you clean and fresh and new again? The very first sermon Jesus ever preached was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's still the invitation today.